right, well, good morning again. And if you have a Bible, we are going to be right there where uh, Ben was reading from in first, or 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Graduates, while you are still in here, and I hope you continue to be in here in the years to come, but while you're still in here for right now, uh, I just wanted to say congratulations. Um, I know it's still coming. We do it early because by the time that like you're actually graduating, there's a gazillion things going on. So we go ahead and do it a little bit early. But anytime you start talking about graduation, you automatically, and parents of graduates, you'll appreciate this, you start thinking about getting a job, right? Like whether you're going to go to college first and, and, and then get a job, well, that job's coming. Or if you're going to go to college, you're probably going to work part-time at least. And so you have a job that is coming. And with any job that you have, in, in, like generally, there is a job description that comes with it. Some sort of job description describing, hey, here are the things that are expected of you. Here are some responsibilities that are expected of you. A positive candidate, you know, for this position will be able to do this and this and this and this and this, right? When we come to 2 Timothy chapter 1, that's basically what we have Paul laying out for us. is a job description of a disciple. In fact, the whole book could really be described as this great big job description because what, what you have going on is, is Paul is on death row. He's in a dungeon. He's on death row. He will not live out to the new year. He says at the end of the book, hey, come by winter. Most people don't, don't think that Timothy and, and friends made it by winter. Nero had him executed before then. So 2 Timothy is his last letter that he ever wrote. He's on death row. And so he writes to his young protege, Timothy, saying, hey, I want to remind you of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And he's got some specific things for Timothy as a pastor in Ephesus is where Timothy was. But in general, it's like, hey, here is what it means to be a follower of Christ. This is what it means to be a disciple. And really, we don't need the adjective good disciple. It's just this is what a disciple is. And so the whole book could really be described as this job description. And week by week by week, there'll be different kind of responsibilities that he lays out for us as we make our way through it. But like any good author, at the beginning of a book, he kind of gives a summary paragraph. It's kind of a skeletal outline of what a good disciple looks like. And so that's what we have before us this morning. We have this job description, high level, skeletal outline of a good disciple. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. And I think in this text, particularly, there are four kind of things that he, that he calls out that, that are the job description of a good disciple. And I want us to use these, like if you are a Christian or call yourself a Christian, I want us to use these this morning as kind of a litmus test on our own lives. If this is what a good disciple is, if this is the job description, where am I living that? And if you're not a Christian, then I hope this morning that, that this would be informative to you of what a Christian should be. Not what might be paraded on TV or caricatured in the media. But what a Christian should be. And I pray, if you're not a Christian, that this would 
Like God would use this in your own life to draw you to himself in faith. Right? No bait and switch in here. My desire, if you're not a Christian, is that you would become one. That you would repent and believe and walk in forgiveness and freedom and a new life that Christ offers to anyone who will believe. No prerequisites. And so, that's what we're going to be talking about. So let's just jump into it. This job description of a good disciple, okay? And the first one is this, okay? If you want to take notes, you, you've got them. A good disciple is not ashamed of the gospel. A good disciple is not ashamed of the gospel. Look at verse 8 and my creativity with this outline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. That's the gospel. All right? Nor of me, his prisoner. Now that word therefore, just teaching you, when you read the Bible and you come to therefore, always look above. All right? Because it's referring back to something. What's it is referring back to is verse 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, like on the basis of that, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. And so Paul's saying, listen, don't be scared, right? You don't have a spirit of fear. So don't be ashamed of the gospel. In Romans chapter 1, Paul describes himself. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And so, friends, a, a good disciple is not ashamed of the gospel. Therefore, the question we must ask is, are we? Am I? Are you? Because one aspect of not being ashamed of the gospel is actually sharing the gospel. Telling others. And so are you doing that? It's part of our job description. Somebody says, I don't, I don't know how. Let me give you three super easy things to do. Super easy. You may want to write them down, though you can probably memorize them. Super easy. Number one, pick out one person who does not know Christ and start inviting them to church every single week. I'm not saying that that will lead them to Christ. A former teammate of mine at Georgia Tech invited Sarah to church every day for three years. Sarah did not know Christ when we got to college. He did it every week for three years. She never went. It bothered her, though, in the right kind of way. And was part of, I would say, how God worked to ultimately bring her to Christ. Number two, start praying for that person daily. God saves people, not you, not your clever words. Now, he works through our words, right? Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. He doesn't just zap people saved, right? He works through people's words. But still, he's the one who does it. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility, they come together. So pray. So number one, pick out somebody, right? Invite them, invite them, invite them. Number two, pray for that person every single day. Number three, ask them if they would be interested in reading the Bible with you. Reading a book of the Bible. I encourage you to start with the book of Mark. 
And they're like, I don't know how to read the Bible. Chat with me afterwards. Chat with one of the elders. Chat with someone who went through some of our training a couple months ago. We'll be glad to help you with that. And then do it again. And then repeat with another person. And then repeat with another person. And then repeat with another person. But yeah, one of the aspects, so three things. Pray, invite and pray, and read the Bible. That's pretty simple. Anybody can do that. That's not crazy. And pray that God will work. And He will. Put it out there and go for it. But that's one aspect of the gospel, of, of not being ashamed of the gospel. It's actually sharing the gospel with others. Telling them the bad news that we are sinners, we are separated from God by our sin. There's no way we could ever do enough good to earn our right standing with God. So sharing bad news, we are sinners. But then sharing the good news that God so loved the world that He sent Jesus into the world, sent His one and only Son into the world. And Jesus, what He did is lived the perfect sinless life that none of us did. And then He died the death that we all deserve to die. He took our place. For our sins. He was our substitute. And then three days after he was murdered on the cross, he rose again in victory over sin and death and offers forgiveness to anyone who would take it. And so if you've never taken hold of that, I encourage you today, take hold of that. Trust Christ. If you'd like to talk a little bit more about that after the sermon, find me or one of our elders at the doors. We'd love to talk with you about that. But friends, this is absolutely an aspect of a disciple of Jesus. We are not to be ashamed of the gospel. And so share it. That is a job description, not a job suggestion. But we're also not to be ashamed to stand alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at verse 8 again. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Sometimes, cowardly believers refuse to associate with their brothers and sisters who are taking a stand for Christ. And so sometimes this will happen at school. In a, you know, you're in a group of people, <clears throat> someone takes a stand for Christ or, 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 or bears a witness and the other disciples just kind of, you know, want to move away, want to distance themselves from that, want to, you know, they show little support. Or maybe you're an athlete and after the game there's going to be an after party and you know what kind of stuff's going to go on there so you choose not to go but all your other Christian friends like they ridicule you, they make fun of you and they, 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 they go on, right? They don't stand together. Or maybe a, a business trip and an employee goes on the business trip and they refuse to engage in the sin of the customers who want them to go to the gentleman's club that evening. And other so-called Christians abandon them. That guy's a weirdo. Friends, as believers, we are to be weirdos. We are to be different. We are to be outsiders. We don't fit. We live in the world, and we love the, the world in, in one sense of the world, but we're not of the world. And so we don't love the world in a different sense of the world word. And so if there is no difference 
between your lifestyle and the lifestyle of your non-Christian friends, no difference, that should give you pause. There's no difference. Because it means at best you're ashamed of the gospel. At worst, you're not actually a Christian. The gospel changes us. And so he says, how, how? How can I live this way? How can I live this way of not being ashamed in a world who looks down upon me that much? Skip down to verse 12 real quick. <clears throat> Skip down to verse 12 real quick. Paul says this. Talking about, you know, here's why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, right? And we're talking about not being ashamed. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Now, there's a hymn that's almost verbatim based upon that verse. We're actually going to sing it next week, okay? Almost verbatim based upon that verse. But the point here is when you remember who Christ is and what He has done and that He is the one working in you and through you, you can live unashamed. See, religious people, <clears throat> religious people find God useful. Cross-bearing disciples find Christ beautiful. And that is a major difference. It's just useful for me. He's everything to me. And so as a good disciple, a good disciple is not ashamed of the gospel. Verse 7, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Number two, and this is closely related. A good disciple suffers for the gospel. A good disciple suffers for the gospel. Look at verse 8 again. Again, we're talking about job descriptions here. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel. Paul's suffering. I think a lot of times we just think Paul had everything hunky-dory. I mean, he talks about how he's shipwrecked. He's bit by a snake. He's been beaten constantly, thrown out of cities, on and on and on. And here he's in a dungeon on death row waiting to get his head chopped off. He's suffering. And friends, understand, historically and globally, this is the norm. This is part and parcel of being a Christian. I mean, Paul will write a little bit later in chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And this doesn't mean we need to all get like a martyr's you know, complex and go seeking suffering like some Christians did in the second century. Now, healthy Christians don't choose suffering, but they do choose to follow Christ even if that means suffering. Jesus put it like this in John chapter 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world... Therefore, the world hates you. 
Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted you, if they persecuted me, rather, they will also persecute you. And so when you stand for Christ, there will be consequences. There will. Just will. For Paul and million of our brothers and sisters around the world, this means death, this means harassment, this means prison, this means worshiping underground in caves, in houses secretly hidden. And the U.S. is not to that point yet, could get there someday. But what you will face here is still the possibility of losing your job, losing your business, losing opportunities, losing friends being excluded, not invited, being looked down upon, treated like a bigot. Maybe you're acting like one, but a lot of times treated like a bigot even when you're not. Friends, as believers, we are outsiders. We need to embrace our particularity, embrace being weird. The world is not our home, Jesus told us. If we were of the world, they would love us. Since they're not, they hate us. And so the good disciple, like our Lord, will suffer for the gospel. But I think there's another way that we are called to suffer, that a, a disciple is called to suffer, that maybe isn't like, you know, as directly I stand for Christ, I get suffering. And it's this. A good disciple suffers in that they fight their sin. They fight their sin. Not, not just rolling over and giving in and saying, it's, it's too hard. God, God would want me to suffer in this way. That I want this. And I, he says, no, God wouldn't want me to suffer in this way. And, and he wouldn't, definitely wouldn't call me to give up something that's core to who I am. Surely he just wants me to be happy. And since this makes me happy, then it's all good. Listen to the words of Jesus again, Mark 8, 34. Whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to be my disciple, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Note, whoever. Sit in some of y'all. Whoever. We all are to deny ourselves. In some way, shape, or form, I want to get revenge. Deny yourself. Just got to deny yourself. We're called to costly sacrifice. Carrying a cross is death. And so it doesn't mean just tweaking your behavior here or there. It's, it's maybe even saying no to the deepest sense of who you are for the sake of Christ. So, for example, there's a guy named Sam Alberry, an amazing pastor in England. Sam Alberry is same-sex attracted. But he's committed to orthodoxy. And so he lives a celibate life. It doesn't mean that he has no temptations. It means that he takes every thought obedient to every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and does not act upon those. He's the author of a book called Is God Anti-Gay, which we usually keep copies of at the back here, so those books are for you. Grab them. If you see one, grab it, take it, we'll replace them. They're, they're for you. Free resources. And I commend that book to you. 
But anyhow, Sam Alberry, he writes this. Ever since I've been open about my experiences of same-sex attraction, a number of Christians have said something like this. The gospel must be harder for you than it is for me. As though I have more to give up than they do. But the fact is that the gospel demands everything of all of us. And someone thinks that the gospel somehow slotted into their life quite easily without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyle or aspirations, it is likely that they have not really started following Jesus at all. And so, friends, does the gospel cause an adjustment to your life? Are there things now that you don't do that you would do if you weren't a Christian? Are there things now that you do that you wouldn't if you weren't a Christian? Do you suffer for Jesus or or, or maybe teach your kids to suffer for Jesus by saying no to things that might regularly get in the way of the gathering with God's people where you're washed with the Word? Or do you teach your kids to just slide Jesus in when it fits well with all the other stuff they do, when it's convenient. Friends, we're called to live differently. We're called to suffer for the gospel, to pick up our cross, to follow Jesus, to live differently with different priorities than the world. This is part and parcel of being a Christian. But friends, we don't suffer alone. Look look at verse 8 again. Notice what he says. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And so this call to suffer here is not a carpe diem, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, drawing on your own might and whipping your enthusiasm up into a can-do frenzy. It's a solemn urging, rather, to let the Spirit of God work through you, and carry out God's purposes in God's ways, in God's time, for God's glory. And a willingness to follow Christ regardless of what it means. All right, so that's the, the how. How do we do this? We do this by the power of God, but why? why? Why should I suffer in this way? And why should I, you know, not be ashamed of the testimony? <clears throat> well, it starts in verse 9. We'll start in verse 8 just to get the whole flow. Look at it with me. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And so that's the why. That's the why. We, we do all of this because the gospel is worth it. Because Jesus is worth it. 
Because Jesus has rescued us, not because of anything we've done, but 100% of grace, which means undeserved favor. Okay, it's something God chose to give us. And Jesus has come and he's abolished death. That's what the resurrection did. None of us will taste, if you are in Christ, you will not taste spiritual death. Because Christ tasted it for you, and he rose again, defeating it, bringing rather for us eternal life, immortality, life, everlasting, in heaven, with Christ. And so friend, if you are in Christ, you were chosen by grace, you are kept by grace, and you will see Jesus one day by grace. Remind yourself of that daily, especially in your sufferings. We suffer by the power of God who saved us, is keeping us, and will preserve us all the way to heaven. That's why Christ is worth it. And so do not be ashamed of the gospel. Suffer for the gospel by the power of God. And now number three, live out the gospel. And so responsibility number three of this job description, a good disciple lives out the gospel. A good disciple lives out the gospel. Look at verse 13. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And so Paul is saying, look, I've lived it. Okay, God saved me miraculously. I was on my way to Damascus to persecute the Christians some more. And he showed up, knocked me off my donkey, saved me, changed me. And I've been trying to live this out. Not perfectly. I'm the least of the apostles. But I've been trying to live this out. And so follow the pattern of my life and of my words and try to live this out. I've been changed. Growing up down in Georgia, I can't really remember a day where I was not, uh, we did not have horses. The, the first horse I can remember us having was named Pride. He was a stallion and he was proud of himself. But we always had horses. Sometimes my brother and I would come home from school and, you know, we'd, Saddle them up and we'd go riding around. It's just what we did. And so I knew, my, I knew and know how to behave around horses. But one day when I was about 12, we were uh, up at my cousin's house just outside of Chickamauga getting ready to go on a trail ride through. There's a big battlefield there. It's actually the first national park that was a battlefield. Um, the first one. Huge and we were getting ready to go on a trail ride through there. And so rather than trailer our horses up there, they just had a slew of horses. So we were going to ride some of theirs. And so I was getting this uh, gray mare. And not, I mean, you're like, oh, that's very, you know, tongue-in-cheek with the song. But yeah, it really was. It was a gray and it was mare. And so I was getting the gray mare ready and uh, needed to go to the tack room to get something else. And so I know how to behave around the back end of a horse. But this horse was gentle, this horse, I mean, there's no problem. So I'm just walking around, just got lazy with what I'm doing. Well, what I didn't know is my dad was leading out of a stall this Palomino horse. And this gray horse hated its guts. Didn't know this. So I'm just walking along, whatever. 
And that horse, trying to get the Palomina, backs up and kicks, but it catches me instead. It hits me in the side of my leg. I, 12-year-old Joe goes airborne and hits the, the stalls on this side. My dad, still to this day, doesn't see how my leg didn't break because he said he saw it go. Hurt like crazy. Long story short, there were a couple weeks later, I got shot by a BB gun, bit by a horse, and I was stretching at, at uh, seventh grade PE one day, and my shorts rode up, and they saw my bruises. They took me to the counselor's office. <laughs> <laughs> Is there something going on at home you want to tell us about? But after I got kicked, never again was I lazy around the rear end of a horse. Because you can't get hit like that and not live changed. The gospel's similar. You can't get kicked by the gospel and not live in a changed way. It will change how you live. And so living this out, this call to, to live it out, it's just part of the job description of being a Christian. It's not optional. It's mandatory. And so friends, straight up, you can know all the right theology in the world, but if it doesn't affect the way you live, if it doesn't change you, you're probably not converted. I mean, the dude who shot up the synagogue recently. You read what he wrote, you can pass any theological test, evangelical theological test. And demons, they know and believe better theology than any of us in this room. But they don't live it. Synagogue God didn't live it. And so, as James says, and Pastor Chad's been teaching the students. Faith without works is dead. It's fraudulent. And to be careful, we're not talking perfection here, but we are talking real. Okay, real. But you also can't change the truth of the gospel to try and, and fit in. Let me just change the gospel. Right? We're, we're outsiders. We've been, we've been handed the faith once for all, delivered to the saints. And so now we stand for it. We suffer for it. We live it. And then number four, we guard it. We guard it. Look at verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. These are the this is a job description of a Christian. We're not ashamed, we suffer, we live it, and we guard it. See, God's Word has the power to determine where people spend eternity. And so Paul urged Timothy, therefore, to guard it just like you might protect a room full of treasure from thieves. And so just as you deposit a check at the bank, trusting that that bank, the entire system, will keep up with your money and keep it safe from those who want to do, you know, take it illegally. So we are called to guard the gospel from being co-opted or changed. And for just being honest, if, this, if we took this command personally, it would be utterly terrifying, overwhelming. I mean, imagine the United States government 
giving you the responsibility to guard the gold reserves at Fort Knox. And so they hand you a rifle and some ammunition. Go get them, tiger. It's all on you. Guard this deposit. You'd be terrified. You know you couldn't do it. But what if, on the other hand, they said, guard the treasure and you have the entire U.S. military at your disposal? Well, then you're going to walk with a little more confidence. It's the same thing here. Paul says, do this, verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, within you. See, the Lord didn't leave Timothy, nor does he leave us alone to protect the pure doctrine of God from marauders. We have the power of Almighty God in us to help us with this. And so we're called to guard the gospel. As as Paul puts it elsewhere, to keep close watch on the doctrine. And we try to do that here at Providence. We are big on theology here. We put a premium on doctrine because in order to worship God rightly, you've got to know the God that you are worshiping. And theology just means study of God. And so we put a premium on that. But here's a caution we need to have corporately and individually. We have got to be careful in our guarding to not love the idea of Jesus more than we love Him personally. To just love the idea of Jesus more than we actually love Him. Because while we are big on theology, and rightly so, listen to me, theology that does not lead to a greater passion and love for Jesus is not legit theology. Because what happens in that moment is you begin to exalt the truth Beyond the one who is truth. And that's backwards. And so we've got to be on guard against that because the next thing you know, you wind up loving doctrine, but you don't love Jesus the way that you love the doctrine that's about Jesus. And so what winds up happening then and takes place in you is you become graceless, you become loveless, you begin to lack patience with others, you can't admit fault, and your message ceases to be the love and mercy of Jesus Christ and begins to be whatever doctrine you've pinpointed as your little pet that's the centerpiece of everything. And when that happens, Paul says, you are nothing more than a clanging gong and a clanging cymbal. And so as we follow the pattern of Paul's sound words, and as we guard the gospel, we are to do this in verse 13, the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. How we live is just as important as what we say, maybe more so. But not everyone around Paul did this. Look at verse 15. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him 
to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Ephesus is where Timothy's pastor. And so he knew Onesiphorus very well. But the point, verses 15 through 18, is you've got this call to guard the gospel. And then Paul gives us some examples of folks who did and some examples of folks who didn't. And so like Onesiphorus, he guarded the gospel. His name literally means prophet bringer. And apparently he supplied Paul remotely from Ephesus and then came and actually visited him in person while he was in prison at great personal risk. Because during Nero's persecution, if you got caught visiting a Christian in prison, you went to prison and you had an execution order put on you as well. But he did that. He came and searched for him and found him, which had to be hard in a confusion uh, of a city that's been burned and has a crazy guy running it. But others, they left Paul. They left him without food or supplies. Now, we don't know for sure if these folks left the faith, but we do know they left Paul. Right? So, so things got hard, and they got out. They went somewhere new, someplace different, someplace that worked better for them, that was easier for them. That's not what we do as church members. We're not consumers. We've covenanted together as a body, as a family. And we walk with one another in the good times and in the bad times. And like a family, like you wouldn't do with your family, we don't bail on our family when it gets hard. No, we work through it because this is how God grows us in grace. And to just bail when it gets hard is to short circuit God's work in your life. He sanctifies you through one another. But that's what Phagellus and Hermogenes did. But look at those who did stay with Paul. You've got Onesiphorus, and if we jump to the end of the book, we also see Luke stayed with him. That's the author of Luke. Mark stayed with him. That's the author of Mark. And they had beef, but they, got, they made up. And Timothy. They were all unafraid to aid him and visit him in prison. These are the kind of friends that we all need. He had, we need. I don't have friends like this, you say. Developing friendships is not convenient. Sometimes they are costly. They are time-consuming. They are labor-intensive. They are emotionally draining. Friendships, sometimes they get in the way of progress what you want to do, or maybe even your career, or the numbers on the left-hand side of the decimal on your paycheck. Friendships can cause heartache. They require us to forgive and then endure the painful process of restoring trust. But friends, is this not true of anything that's worthwhile? Does not almost everything worth pursuing require sacrifice? A conscious decision to accept less of one thing so that you might have more of another thing. We give up playtime so that we can earn money. We give up money so that we can have food and shelter and clothing. 
We might purchase a smaller home so that we can live in a neighborhood with better schools. When I was a runner, I gave up lots of time with friends so that I could train because I wanted this more. We could go on and on and on with these examples. This is just the way life works. But we don't think that's how it works in relationships. Somehow we think those are to happen automatically in our spare time with little or no conscious effort. But they don't. And you need these kind of friends and I need these kind of friends and that takes intentionality. It takes intentionality on your part. But one way we can be intentional about this is with those suppers John was talking about. I call them summer suppers. I think he called them something else. But it's just, Sarah and I are doing one and there's a host of other people. And there's like eight slots on there. I think, are we doing ours on Wednesday? And so you just sign up for saying, hey, Wednesday's free for me. I'll go eat, get to know so-and-so, whoever it is. And that's a process of being intentional and beginning to know one another. And as a body, knowing one another. Not just our little groups that we, we are in. Loving all as a family. And so if you're interested in that, see Mona. She's got a table outside. But back to the point, friends. These are things that we've talked about that if you are a Christian are expectations. They are part of our job description. And so let's do our job well. Because Christ is worth it. And so let's live unashamed. Let's suffer well. Let's live out the faith. And let's guard it. And let's do all of this together. Because we're family. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Let's pray. Father, help us, Lord, to be diligent about being a good disciple, or as Paul puts it later in here, a a good workman, well-approved. And we would present ourselves to you as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Help us to these things. Lord, help us to be intentional in developing friendships. Help us to be intentional in sharing the gospel. Help us to be intentional in understanding that suffering is not uncommon. In fact, that Peter says, do not be surprised by this fiery trial that comes upon you. And then, Father, also comfort us in our failures because we haven't lived up to this and we never will fully. And so help us run to the cross and cling closely to Jesus who was perfect for us. He was the perfect disciple, not just a good one. He was the perfect disciple. He fully followed you Always. Even to the point of the cross. Even death on a cross. And therefore you have highly exalted him. 
And let us learn from him as he prayed, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. And let us spur one another on as a family in this, to live out this job description. And thank you for your grace and mercy. That is new every morning like the dew. And that comes from a fountain that can never run dry. And that you are a rock of ages who is always there. And we can hide ourselves in thee. We praise you, O oh God. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.